Hello and welcome to the November 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the founder of Legal, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. That's a mouthful of a lead in art. Well, you wrote it. Yeah, there's a lot to say about you. Um, we're going to start talking about the lead issue of November 2012 issue of Law Notes. But first, um, by the time people hear this, we will have a new president or a second term of our existing well, – this is election day. Right? We'll, we'll have a president-elect. Yes. And I know you don't like to speculate, but for a moment, can you give us a sense of the meaning for, for LGBT, LGBT rights if, if there is a change over an administration? What do you think? Well, one thing that won't change is that the President of the United States, uh, as of January 20th, 2013, will be a graduate of the Harvard Law School. And that we can all rest we rest can, well at we night. Can rest well, that we're not going to have one of these Yale rejects. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry you know, that. actually, I was a little nervous. It's election day. I'm a little nervous, but that puts me at ease. Okay. So is that, is that because, all you have? Because you know who the last Yale Law School yes, graduate I was. Yes, I do. In Who the is White that? House. That's, that's Bill Clinton. Oh, is that right? I thought it was George Bush. All right, so you've given me George no – George W. Bush is not a lawyer. I was actually trying to ask uh, – his father. Didn't his father have a law degree? Oh, no, it was business school. Okay, we've diverted. I tried to get you to actually weigh in on what the meaning of this election could be for the LGBT well, community, but you – I am I – am You a, swung and missed. Okay. I am a, an, a devotee of Nate Silver and 538.com on the New York Times website, and he says it's Obama. So you're cool as a cucumber. So, um, okay. All right. So, all right. Perfect. So um, moving on to the lead story. So we've got a major, although not entirely unexpected, good news from the Second Circuit regarding DOMA in the case of Windsor v. United States. There, the Second Circuit ruled that Section 3 of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, which, as you probably already know, mandates that the federal government not recognize lawfully contracted same-sex marriages, that that violates the Fifth Amendment guarantee of equal protection of the rights of same-sex couples. Um, we'll get to some of the court's reasoning in a second, but Art, remind us here again about the plaintiff in this case and what's at stake uh, for, for this individual litigant and then obviously the larger picture. Okay. Edie Windsor, who is the plaintiff in this case, uh, married her same-sex partner in Canada in 2007, and her partner unfortunately passed away a few years later, and uh, they, uh, they had some property uh, and there was a massive inheritance tax, hundreds of thousands of dollars in inheritance tax that had to be paid because the federal government did not recognize this marriage. Uh, if Edie Windsor was treated as a surviving spouse, it would have all passed to her tax-free. Uh, and the way you do this with, with taxes is you pay and then you sue for a refund. So this lawsuit is her suit for a refund. She won in the district court and now she's won in the Second Circuit. And in fact, after the district court ruling, the ACLU Lesbian Gay Rights Project, uh, which represents her in this case, uh, had already filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court to try to get direct review from the district court's decision, part of their argument being that Edie Windsor is 83 years old, she's not in great health, she'd like to see this suit resolved in her lifetime. And uh, the Justice Department weighed in as well. Uh, they have told the Supreme Court that they think this is the case to take on Section 3. Uh, maybe even in preference to the First Circuit case. 
And there, there's various forms of speculation as to why that's so, which maybe we can get into later. But we should talk about the case first. I yeah, guess. and 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 I think by way of background, this is we've been talking a lot about this. Obviously, anyone who cares about LGBT legal this rights is, is this talking is one about of the big issues. Yeah, and talking know. about DOMA generally, and obviously this is one of the biggest cases. But this is obviously not the first federal court to strike down DOMA. Uh, but it's it's especially important for a host of reasons. But can you can you give us a sense of what's what's different about this case in terms of the court's analysis? Well, this case, as contrasted to the First Circuit ruling in the Gill case, uh, which was brought by GLAD, the uh, gay and lesbian public interest firm in Boston, uh, in that case, the court said that Section Three of DOMA did not survive rational basis review. Uh, a rational basis review in a form that the bipartisan legal advisory group blag. Blag of the House <laughs> of Representatives, which is defending Section 3 since the Justice Department won't do it anymore, uh, Blag says it's some odd, unusual new form of rational basis review that the First Circuit invented for this case, but actually it's just a form of slightly heightened uh, rational basis review that the Supreme Court has used in a few cases in the past, including Romer versus Evans. Uh, but the difference is in this case, the Second Circuit panel, by a two-to-one vote, held that they should use heightened scrutiny, that, in fact, sexual orientation is a quasi-suspect classification like sex, and therefore the burden is on the government to justify the discriminatory exclusion of same-sex married couples from equal treatment under federal law. And, and, and on that point, um, we, we've talked a fair amount about how important the level of scrutiny is and, and, and in the context of other cases. I want to read to you what, something that the court wrote here, and this is, uh, this is Judge uh, Jacobs writing for the majority, correct? And this right. is an appointee, actually, of the first President Bush writing, writing a majority joined by an Obama appointee, uh, and, and, and the lone dissenter was actually an appointee of President Bill Clinton. And we'll right. get to that dissent. And remember, Bill Clinton signed the Defense of America. Yeah, which maybe, maybe it shouldn't be surprising then. That well, he, the, he now repudiates yes, that. Yes, I've, I've heard he has. Um, and, and he writes, the question is – this is on you know, deciding on whether – political power. Yes. He says the question is not whether homosexuals – and I want to get, get your views on this. Continue. Republican appointees tend to say, say homosexuals. I, I want to talk to you about the courts. Courts in general, their repeated use of homosexuals, not that there's anything right. necessarily pejorative I, about I that. I think but the Supreme Court justice, in fact, who uh, was the first to depart from that was David Souter, who was also a Republican appointee. But he referred to gay people. Well, I, in, I, in, I think it was in the Boy Scouts. Well, I do want to get to that, though, because it is stark in some ways, some of these quotes. But he writes, the question is not whether homosexuals have achieved political successes over the years. They clearly have. The question is whether they have the strength to politically protect themselves from wrongful discrimination. And certainly by the way the question is framed, I think we know what the answer is. So walk us through a little bit well, what's going on there. It's interesting. Uh, he, he has to determine – whether sexual orientation discrimination merits heightened scrutiny. And so there are various factors that the Supreme Court has analyzed in prior cases to try to determine whether to apply a higher level of scrutiny. And one of them is whether the group that is suffering discrimination uh, is not fully capable of protecting its interests in the normal political process. Uh, another is whether there's a history of discrimination against the group whether the characteristic that defines the group is immutable or deeply rooted uh, or uh, uh, in, in some way beyond the control of the members of the group. Uh, and going through all these factors, uh, the court says that if you compare sexual orientation to the other characteristics that the court has identified as suspect or quasi-suspect classifications, 
it meets the test. And, and he draws a lot – the court draws a lot of parallels to the, the level of scrutiny applied for laws discriminating against women in right. the sense that clearly by the time – you know, women had achieved various advances in the form of voting rights obviously and, and other societal advances. But yet at the time that these – you know, discrimination – discriminatory laws were being considered, it was recognized that they formed a uh, – I think you would call a quasi-suspect class uh, that laws based on – uh, gender would be subject to that level of scrutiny. Right. And I, I think, though, that it's very important in considering this multifactorial analysis that in its own decisions on this, the Supreme Court has never said that you have to meet all the factors in order to get heightened scrutiny. Uh, that in any particular case, they tend to focus on one or two of the factors. And that the real issue here uh, is whether there is reason to suspect that Congress is acting out of some kind of discriminatory animus as opposed to making some reasoned objective policy judgment. That's, is, what, is, that's is, what heightened scrutiny is. There suspect reason, is there reason to expect that they were doing anything but that? No, not when you look at the legislative history. <laughs> I mean, and, is this one of those scratch your heads and try to figure well, out what Congress was up to? Is, it was pretty clear, right? Well, you know, you have to cast your mind back to 1996, yes, those dim, dark ago. ages, yeah. uh, and uh, – when the trial court in Hawaii was trying to decide whether same-sex marriage was required under the Hawaii Constitution and people were speculating about gay people would all fly to Hawaii and get married yeah. and other states would have to. So there was a bit of a panic in Congress at the time. And also it was in the midst of a national congressional and pres presidential election in 96. And uh, there was a sense in which the Republican Party was trying to use this as a wedge issue as they successfully did in 2004, for example. And uh, President Clinton tried to checkmate that strategy by endorsing the bill and signing it into law. Uh, so, you know, there were all kinds of political currents running through in 1996, none of them having anything to do with the merits of whether it made sense for the federal government to recognize same-sex couples who had been allowed to marry by the state in which they resided or where they happened to be at the time they applied. And, and let me you, – you, this is clearly a very consequential decision and, yes. and not only – But only interim. Well, only that's interim. what I was going to add to you. term it and you wrote this, this lead story for Law Notes as you sometimes do and often do and you termed it an interim victory. Right. Uh, and you, you point to some developments that may or may not take place at the, Supreme, at the U.S. Supreme Court level for right. why it's an interim victory. Well, what, what, what do you mean by that? It's an interim victory because it doesn't have nationwide application and it's subject to review. And it seems to me almost incomprehensible that the Supreme Court will not take up this question this term because at this point we've had courts declaring Section 3 of DOMA unconstitutional, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the Southern District of New York, the District of Connecticut, uh, decision out of the uh, district court in San Francisco. You, you point out this is a remarkable run for Mr. Yes. Clement of uh, Yes, he manages black. to lose every case it's so far. 14 uh, adverse decisions? Well, but, but he finally got he finally got a dissenting decision from Judge Stroud. And, you know, that's a good segue, Art, and I didn't know yes. you were going to go there. I was puzzled uh, by Judge Stroud's dissent, and I, I confess I did not read it its entirety, but one of the quotes that you point out, uh, he, he says... Um, he writes that any developments on this front talking about the right to uh, – for, no. for marriage equality must be by the people through their elected representatives. He says um, any such development must come from the elected representatives of the American people, whatever the merits of doing so in a context other than the marital union, carving out this unique this unique basis for, for carving out a you know, 
marriage equality decisions only for the legislature. I conclude that in respect of the unique institution of marriage, it would be imprudent to announce a new rule under which sexual orientation is subject to heightened scrutiny. Now, he probably I'm, – I'm, I'm doing it a disservice by reading it in that tone. But what is he talking about? Is that really a rule of law that this is a decision that must be decided by the elected representatives well, what, of the what people? He's, what he's talking about, and it's, it's a frequent talking point in the debate over uh, who should decide – whether same-sex couples can marry. And we saw this play out in New Jersey. The legislature passed a marriage equality law, and Governor Christie vetoed it. And in his veto message, he said he thinks this is a policy decision for the people of New Jersey in a referendum. Right. That's a, that's a and he poli- challenged the legislature that's a, that's to put it on the ballot. That's an elected official, a, a, a non-judicial official. That's a, yes, that's a but, making that message. But is this but, but, typical well, for the New York Court of Appeals said, said as much. Okay. Remember in the uh, – in the Hernandez case, uh, the the New York Court of Appeals said uh, this was, I think, two thousand. Yeah, but this this is he's they're writing he's writing this dissent against the backdrop of we do have a state, we do have now a variety of states through through certain mechanisms in which yes, marriage but, is present, but, marriage but, equality but, is yes, present. Yes, but this is this is the interesting point, and once again, the fact that we're recording this on election day makes this very acute. That on the ballot in Maine is an affirmative initiative to enact marriage equality. And if it is passed, then for the first time in the United States, the electorate of a state will have made the policy decision, which is just what Judge Straub is calling for here. And uh, my understanding from the polling is it's possible. But everyone who's listening to this will know the outcome. And and they have that benefit. They have that benefit. And it's also on the ballot in Maryland and Washington where the state legislatures have passed marriage equality but opponents of marriage equality managed to put a referendum on the ballot. So, and then we have Minnesota as well. Well, Minnesota's an anti-marriage yeah, equality uh, constitutional amendment, which is sort of old hat. What thirty-two of them have been enacted, <laughs> and if we beat this back, it will be you know extraordinary. Okay, so um, so the last question on this point, and then we're going to take a break. Um, I do want to circle back. It's sort of tangential, but I do want to hear your views on what is the deal with all the courts seeming never to be able to refer to the LGBT community as anything other than homosexuals? And why do I care? Well, you know, I, I think you're, uh, you're being unfair to the courts because a lot of them now refer to lesbians and gay men or the LGBT community. Uh, so what is it when courts Some don't? judges use the word homosexual, and I think – what it has to do with in part is this is the language that's being used by the other side in their briefs and their arguments. And many of these judges grew up at a time when that was the polite way to refer to – well, I'm not going to use the word because you say we'll get censored. No, please. I don't want to go through the trouble of having to censor you again. Yeah. It's very okay. complicated argument. So I won't use the words that, <laughs> that would have been used to describe Well, they, they may come up in some of the cases we're talking about either you this month or – pervert? Night. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can get away with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not putting explicit on the tag just because of your use of the word pervert. Okay. But is that all we have on them? So this is great news, but well, well, we, well, the, point the, is, the verdict is out the, on the, the larger The other thing, and, and some people who are listening to this podcast will know how this turns out as well. Why are we on, even talking to November, We should just wait. On November, we should, 20th, yes. on November 20th, the U.S. Supreme Court will hold a conference to decide cert petitions, and they have put on the calendar for that meeting – all of the DOMA cert petitions, the Proposition 8 cert petition from California, the Arizona Domestic Partnership Benefits decision. So uh, on Stay November tuned. 20th and November 21st, we will find out whether this is going to be a big season for gay rights in the Supreme Court. And we're going to leave 
this segment. On that note, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a federal case out of Kentucky involving a prosecution under and a related challenge to the Federal Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Stay with us. We are back discussing the case of U.S. v. Jenkins, which involves, uh, as mentioned, both a prosecution under and a related challenge to the Federal Hate Crimes Prevention Act. All right, let's start with some background before getting into the facts of this case. Um, As many of our listeners know, Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crime Prevention Act in 2009. Tell us a bit about that legislation. Well, this legislation makes it a federal crime. Uh, to commit a uh, violent attack on somebody because of their race or their sexual orientation. Uh, And it's a federal crime because, Congress says, it has to involve some kind of instrumentality of commerce. Uh, There has to be some nexus to Congress's power under the Commerce Clause because Congress doesn't have general authority to just pass criminal statutes. The criminal statutes have to relate in some way to uh, the authority of Congress to regulate commerce or to uh, engage in some other activity like imposing taxes or things of that sort. Uh, So it's not a general hate crimes law. It's a federal hate crimes law that has to have some sort of federal nexus in order to confer jurisdiction. Uh, So in this case, which is, according to the press reports I've seen, is the first or perhaps one of the first prosecutions of anti-gay hate crime in federal court under uh, this uh, federal hate crime law. That strikes me as as surprising. Well, the statute was passed in 2009. We're we're two and a half years later, and unfortunately the the amount of times you hear about an attack that was based on someone's perceived or actual sexual orientation seems fairly frequent. What you also hear is that when there are prosecutions, they're usually under state law. And this, in fact, was originally a state law prosecution, and then the state withdrew the indictment after the attorney general, U.S. Attorney General's office certified that they wanted to prosecute this as a well. And let's um, for our listeners, let's in two paragraphs uh, of speech or less. Um, the, the facts of this case are pretty disturbing, as as, as you might expect. Uh, any prosecution brought under the Hate Crimes Prevention Act, you would expect, would have some grisly facts. And remember, um, the facts that you're reciting are the allegations of the indictment, yes. because. This what we're what we're really discussing in law notes is a pretrial ruling on a motion to dismiss, and the court uh, denied the motion to dismiss. Well, let's get in. I'm going to jump. But, let's, but let's we get should into mention what that the there was subsequently a trial. A- absolutely. Okay. So the, here it's allegations. The allegations that the Jenkinses, David Jason Jenkins and Anthony Ray Jenkins, who are cousins, made plans to kidnap and assault a gentleman named Kevin Pennington because. They knew he was gay. Uh, they were aided in this effort by, uh, by a family member and a, a, a yeah, sister and a wife of the two gentlemen. And according to the allegations, the two women helped lead Pennington to um, Anthony Jenkins's pickup truck where the cousins concealed their identities. And then the Jenkinses proceeded to drive Pennington along U.S. Highway 119, and that becomes important, uh, to a secluded area uh, in a state park where they restrained and then brutally beat Pennington while yelling anti-homosexual uh, epithets. So Pennington actually testified that he managed to escape while the cousins were looking in their pickup truck for a tire tool, which they were going to use to kill him. Um, so we've discussed that this might be the first prosecution under the Hate Crimes 
um, Prevention Act. Um, and, and, and the defendants here do something that maybe isn't that surprising. Their first order of business is to attack the constitutionality of that statute. Um, and our, what's, their, what's their argument on that front? Their argument is that Congress didn't have power to pass it and that even if they had power to pass it, it is unduly vague and therefore violates their rights to substantive due process and also their First Amendment rights uh, of association, uh, that the First Amendment uh, uh, would be violated here by punishing thought is a frequent argument about hate crime statutes. But uh, the more immediate problem was whether Congress even had jurisdiction to take something that would traditionally be dealt with under state law. I mean, assault is a state law crime. Uh, of course, assault committed on a federal reservation becomes a federal crime. Uh, there has to be a federal nexus. And Congress realized this, as I mentioned earlier, when they passed this hate crimes law, they said only if the hate crime involves the use of an instrumentality of commerce or somehow relates to interstate commerce, it, it involves taking something across state lines, for example, or using a state highway or using uh, some item that has moved in commerce. In this case, they used they, a motor vehicle. A motor vehicle, and they travel on a U.S. Right. So, so if they had kidnapped him and spirited him off on foot, on a footpath through the woods, instead of using the highway, maybe the court would have found that Congress didn't have jurisdiction to criminalize I, I know you would say to me that's how the Commerce Clause works and Congress's power works, but that still strikes me as an odd result. In other words, bizarre. Yes. But this is an aspect of our federalism. <laughs> I find it bizarre. This is an aspect of our federalism. And, okay. and in fact, one of the you, – You repeating federalism doesn't make me any less finding of it bizarre. Well, okay. <laughs> Go back and take con law. Oh, that hurts. Well, you know, it's all that commerce clause stuff that everyone <laughs> finds so boring. But every now and then it actually it is important. Yes. And, and the judge rejected the, uh, the facial challenge and said, analyzing it in light of the facts of this case, it is clear that there is a federal nexus here under existing precedents. And therefore, he rejected the, uh, the Commerce Clause argument. He also rejected the First Amendment and the, and the vagueness arguments and said this case has to go to trial. And then at trial, the prosecution lost. The jury acquitted. And I, 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 I want to talk to you about that, and I don't – I, I don't want to presume to know that you've given a lot of thought to how these verdicts turn out in hate crime uh, prosecutions, whether they be state-level hate crime statutes or federal ones. But in this case, the defendants are ultimately found guilty of kidnapping, but they're right. not found guilty of the hate crime. And right. anecdotally, I feel like I've heard of a lot of these types of split verdicts where a jury seems more than willing to say that we know a, a bad crime was committed well, and find them guilty, but we're not willing to find them guilty of a hate crime. Is that not well, true? Well, may, maybe there are instances of that, but from the press reports, and there were press reports every day during the trial, uh, it seems there was quite a bit of evidence of uh, some drug connection in all of this and uh, that Mr. Pennington was lured to the van uh, at least the evidence presented uh, by the defense uh, in connection with some kind of drug deal and that this may have had everything to do with drugs and nothing in particular to do with him being gay other than the fact that he was gay and they knew it. it unless uh, he's so, making up the, the so, yelling about yeah, well, yelling anti-gay comments as the well, beating was happening. It's, it's up to the jury to decide whose testimony they believe. But so there's no uh, – the question I asked is not – I mean – the, the point are these is, split verdicts the fairly point is, common? Well, the, yeah, they are. But the, but the point is you can read the press accounts of the trial and you can say, yeah, a jury could have decided the guy was kidnapped and it's, it's no two ways about it. Uh, he was held against his will. He was transported somewhere. He was beaten. Uh, and so he was assaulted as well. But 
they could decide that this had to do with a drug deal and it didn't necessarily have to do with the fact that he was gay. Okay. Well, it's, I, it's plausible. I, I'll count myself among – I have heard people speculate right. that there's a general reluctance among juries who are representative of just communities, right, to sort of add the – what's sometimes seen as the additional punishment of, 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 an, of a conviction under hate crimes because maybe they have feelings about those hate crime laws well, in the first and, place. And also because there is the complication of the difficulty of proving motivation. Which you have such to a, do. Such a, um, well, I'm a law professor. Yeah, right? I'm supposed know. to have, bring some objective scholarly distance <laughs> to these issues, which I try to do. This is an empirical question, and I'm not sure you're on the right side of it. We don't know. We don't know. But if I had to bet, I'd probably I'd hang my hat on your knowledge over my raw speculation. Okay. <laughs> I'll right. take that. <laughs> I knew you would. All right. We'll take another short break. We'll return. We'll be discussing another case out of Kentucky. What is the deal with Kentucky this month? Hotbed of gay litigation. <laughs> this time in state court concerning a child custody dispute and whether sexual orientation of a parent can be considered in such cases. Stay with us. We are back with our final case, uh, the case of Maxwell v. Maxwell. Uh, in a nutshell, Robert Maxwell and Angela Maxwell were married in 1994 in Arkansas. Uh, three children were born during the marriage, and then things went sour, and Robert filed a petition for divorce, uh, dissolution of the marriage in 2010, and moved for sole custody of the children. Familiar fact pattern. Uh, but the time he, at the time he filed for divorce, his, his, his soon-to-be former wife, Angela, was involved in a same-sex relationship with a woman named Angel. And that's when the legal arguments took a bit of a turn for the worse, although not entirely unfamiliar in these family law cases. Specifically, uh, in addition to a whole host of other arguments, Robert argued that the involvement of Angela with Angel was one of the many factors that should prevent her from having custody. That specifically her sexual orientation or her involvement in a same-sex relationship actually mattered to the child custody decision. And, uh, Art, I turn to you. What did the family court in Kentucky do with this anti-gay argument? I'm sure they, they laughed it out of court, correct? Of course not. They gave it credence, which is, <laughs> which is why we end up with an appellate uh, ruling in this case. Uh, and, and the problem is, if you, if you look at uh, family court jurisprudence involving LGBT parents, uh, you find that there are many examples going back over the years of courts taking the view that uh, same-sex couple living together is the same as a different-sex couple cohabiting without marriage, and that in either way, it's bad for the moral welfare of the child to be raised in a house where uh, there's an illicit sexual relationship between the adults. And uh, since uh, same-sex couples can't marry in Kentucky, there's no way for same-sex couples to live together without it being an illicit relationship, at least in the eyes of many family court judges. And so that's what happened in this case. Uh, the family court judge decided that it was not in the best interest of the children to be with the mother who was cohabiting with another woman and uh, awarded custody to the father. And we get the appeal. All right. And um, the, the appellate court has a, a bit of a different view of what the trial court was up to there. And I, I want to read to you um, – the appellate court sort of sums up neatly um, their view of what the family court thought. It says, they write, apparently in this case, the family court considered Angela's sexual orientation and relationship with another woman to be harmful to the children and possible misconduct. And to the appeals court, the trial court had been addressing whether involvement in a same-sex relationship constitutes sexual misconduct. And the appellate court answered emphatically that it does not. It does not because, uh, among other things, the Kentucky Supreme Court, had declared uh, some time back that their state sodomy law was unconstitutional. And, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court 
in Lawrence versus Texas held the same thing under the federal constitution. And, and so, so we do it's see not here, an illicit relationship. Yeah, we see here the power of, I mean, leaving marriage equality aside, which is obviously a huge fight and important on many levels, but we see again in these cases how much getting rid of these sodomy laws matters in so many ways to the arguments that are made in so many different contexts. Meaning, yeah. and in this case, it seems, I, you know, I actually wrote this story for the law notes, is that it seems that the Kentucky court was quite proud to be relying on the invalidation of their state sodomy law, which predates actually. The decision right. in Lawrence v. Texas, they were one of the many states who had already gotten rid of their anti-sodomy law. And you can see here that it removes some of the nexus for the argument about, you know, just the act of being in a same-sex relationship constitutes some sort of right. offense. Well, this, this was a point that uh, Justice Kennedy made in his opinion for the Supreme Court in Lawrence. He said that uh, attaching the stigma of criminality to same-sex relationships could lead to discrimination, among other things. And here is an example of it, a mother who suffered discrimination in the child custody litigation because of the nature of her relationship. Uh, so uh, this court has, uh, has taken a position which is now becoming increasingly common among state appellate courts, especially since Lawrence versus Texas, and saying that, well, if our state is not going to allow same-sex couples to marry, at the very least we should treat their relationships with respect because they're not presumptively illicit or criminal. Right, and we see how important that is. And then we – so what the appeals court here here does is sort of knocks down basically the, the basis for what they saw as, as this adverse decision for, for the mother in this case and then says, look, we have to just go back to the sort of tried and true standard here of how we evaluate these custody decisions and the best interests of the child govern. And they point to all sorts of – although Angela certainly had her challenges and there, there is some evidence in the record of some substance abuse and, and other challenges, um, which by the way, Robert and his allegations seems to equate, you know, like almost being in a same-sex relationship is as bad as exposing your kids to secondhand smoke. It's, yeah. it's, it's on the same level. But he, they peel that back that argument and what's left is what's in the best interest of their child. There seems to be a fair amount of evidence that the children were pretty happy with a joint custody arrangement, that there seemed to be some quality parenting going on on both sides, and, 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 and that this sort of just holding against uh, – against the mother, uh, her, her sexual orientation or her involvement in a same-sex relationship is obviously not going to rule the day. And they, they remand the case back to the trial court and they do something interesting here, which is they sort of preemptively address another way that a, let's say, a homophobic trial court, trial judge, may try to to, to reach an, an, an adverse decision against the mother again. And what, what's that about? Well, they're, they're saying that uh, it's very important for the trial judge to focus on the objective factors concerning the best interests of the children and not to presume without proof that their mother's relationship is going to be harmful to them in some way. And, and they, they say also that uh, sort of – and don't, don't rely on the fact that she's in an unmarried relationship, meaning they seem to indicate that they're not going to allow – I mean – same-sex marriage is not permissible in, in Kentucky and the idea that they could remand this case in the trial court could say we're not holding we're not holding it against her sexual orientation. We're holding it against her that she is in an unmarried relationship and that could be harmful to well, the child. And, but that also presents the catch-22 in this case because, of course, Kentucky doesn't allow same-sex Well, but I, I think the court though here is sort of getting at that towards the end where they said yeah. that – uh, clearly, changes in moral standards and the inability of same-sex couples to legally legally marry are also relevant. Right. Meaning, we we have to take stock of that fact. Right. Well, the the court is asking the family court to be realistic in evaluating the situation. I mean, one of the big problems that we have uh, in these custody disputes is we have two parents who seem to love their children 
and seem to be well qualified to take care of them when they're left in their care. And yet, because of the alienation between them, a joint custody arrangement may not work. So then a court is put to the burden of trying to figure out which one has custody and which one gets visitation rights. One of the sticking points in in many of these decisions is whether any restriction will be put on the visitation rights that would exclude the same-sex partner, which I think was one of the aspects of this case as well. And courts have increasingly said that it's really inappropriate to exclude the same-sex partner without some kind of evidence that the same-sex partner is having some kind of harmful influence on the children. And and here it's worth noting just sort of one of the only arguments that really was even – it's a hypothetical one, but, you know, Robert and his counsel were arguing that, you know, essentially that the way the children may be harmed is they may be teased about – about the relationship of their mother, uh, Angela, with with Angel. And they sort of made the very common sense (laughs) decision that, well, it would probably be more damaging for them to be in a a situation where they don't get to see as often as they should their mother. And they'll still be the child and 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 the children of someone in a same-sex relationship. The the point is if the kids are going to be teased because their mother is a lesbian – they're going to be teased whether they're living with her or not. Right, and perhaps keeping them in a good right. living arrangement would be better on that front. Right. So a, a very sensical decision, a very fair decision, I think, and sort of tackles one by one, I think, some of the biases that we too often – I mean you, you, you reacted like I was a bit uh, – continually, continuous, continually a bit naive about these some of these judges, but I was taken aback by the sort of what seemed like the naked bias of the family court judge in this case. It's sort of – jumping over backwards to reach an adverse result because I don't think they particularly much cared for lesbians. Well, without stereotyping Kentucky or the Kentucky trial bench, we we can say that the courts are going through a learning curve when it comes to LGBT families. And uh, it's more developed in some jurisdictions than others and with some judges than others. And uh, I think it's incredibly uh, heartwarming to see the appellate courts step in in this case and uh, apply real common sense and a very unbiased view of how these custody decisions should be undertaken. I I think that's a good note to leave it on, and I agree with that. Um, We're going to take a very short break. We'll conclude with our of note segment, which will – uh, during which Art will mention either a notable, infuriating, or hilarious development in the world of LGBT legal news. Stay with us. All right, we're back to close the podcast with our of note segment. Art, take it away. All right, this is this is a story about a, a fellow who was trying to help out someone and now <laughs> seems to be in a lot of trouble. His name is Mark Langridge, and according to an October twenty seven article in the Guardian, a British newspaper, uh, the child support agency has gone after him uh, for support for two children who were born thirteen years ago when he donated sperm to a lesbian couple who he had met in a bar. And they were looking for a sperm donor. And uh, they said, we don't want you to have anything to do with the kids. You know, you know no parent-child really. He hadn't heard about these people for 13 years. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the child support agency is after him that uh, they need money for the kids. He says, just a minute, I'm a dad? I don't remember that. You know, had to go through the whole, you know, refreshing the, the recollection business. And... Uh, they, uh, the position of the agency is the only way he gets off the hook here is doing a DNA test and proving he isn't the biological father. Wow. And it seems that he's being ta- caught in a sort of time trap here because the law has been changed in the UK. And if he had donated the sperm more recently, 
he wouldn't be on the hook. Well, it's, I would say that, that part's heartening because certainly for those you know interested in helping people start families, um, it would be somewhat chilling uh, on on the sort of practice of people being willing to to donate yeah. sperm if. If donating sperm 13 years later, that's uh, after an agreement that you were going to have nothing to do with the child, you right. were on the hook for child support. And there's a quote in the article from the spokesperson for the uh, child support agency who said, the law covering unlicensed sperm donation has always been very clear. Only anonymous sperm donors at licensed centers are exempt from being treated as the legal father of a child born as a result. Well, it's also a lesson about doing it as, as a result right. of an agreement made at a bar. Yeah, but they changed they changed the, the law in April 2009. So... Uh, going forward, you guys, <laughs> you guys in the UK, you can freely uh, donate your sperm, spread it around. You know? All right. All right. On that note, Art, uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, uh, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting legal.org. That's L-E-G-A-L.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at legal.org or find us on Facebook. Uh, to read back issues of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes, visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes where you probably found this one or at legal.podbean.com your comments and questions are also welcome if you want to find Arthur Leonard by finding his email address in law notes thanks for listening